So we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 21 today. It says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down in his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your hearts be cheerful. Heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him. Let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had, had sent word to them. As it is written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lift up, licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut off from uh, Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone of, it, of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Well, there's an old story about a, a police officer who pulled over somebody, and the person he pulls over says, What's wrong, officer? And the officer says, Well, do you know why I pulled you over? He says, I have no idea why you pulled me over. I know I wasn't speeding, 
Uh, I know I didn't go through any red lights. I know I didn't go through any stop signs. I have no idea why you pulled me over. The officer said, well, I saw you when you were at that light. I saw you raise your fist at that person next to you. And as you got on the thruway, I saw you flip the bird to that person that, you, that cut you off. So the man says, well, okay, I mean, is that a crime? I mean, what are you going to give me a ticket for? He said, well, no, it's not a crime, but I saw the bumper sticker on the back of your car that says, Jesus loves you, and I assume the car must be stolen. <laughs> it's hypocrisy. It's something that the church has unfortunately been accused of too many times. Uh, the Episcopal Church actually just released a survey uh, just this month. And what they discovered was they found that when they asked Christian people, how do you view other Christians? How do you, how do you view Christians in general? The words that came to mind were things like, Christians are giving, compassionate, loving, respectful. So that's when they asked Christians. But when they asked non-Christians, how do you view Christians, the words that came up were hypocritical, judgmental, self-righteous. That's how many in the world see us as believers. And the thing is that's difficult is nobody likes hypocrites. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said this, of all the things in the world that stink in the nostrils of men, hypocrisy is the worst. People actually tend to view people who are honest about being bad better than people who are hypocrites. That is, if someone admits that they do a, a bunch of bad things, people view them much more favorably than someone who kind of puts on a front, who pretends they're one thing uh, and are not. And, you know, I, th I was thinking about this question, and why do Christians, why are Christians often uh, seen as hypocrites? And I think there's a lot of possible reasons, but I think there's one reason that kind of sticks out in my mind and that is, as Christians, we don't really believe in grace. As Christians, we don't really believe in, in grace. And that was kind of illustrated to me as I read this passage this week. So in this passage, Ahab uh, sees that this man named Naboth has a vineyard. Now, Ahab is the king of Israel. He can have basically whatever he wants, but he has to have Naboth's vineyard. And so he comes and tries to play nice at first. It says, Naboth... I'll give you money for your vineyard, or I'll give you another vineyard that's better. Now, we don't know why Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard in particular, but he wants Naboth's vineyard, and he's got his heart set on that. And Naboth is like, no, I'm not going to sell it. I don't want a better vineyard. This has been in my family for who knows how long. This is my vineyard. I want to keep my vineyard. So Ahab goes home to his wife, evil queen Jezebel, uh, who was the one who kind of incited him to Baal worship, and he tells her about it, and she says, you're the king of Israel. Like, you should be able to get whatever you want. And so she comes up with this plan. Apparently, uh, either Ahab was approving it or was okay with it. And this plan was that there was going to be two witnesses that were set up, and they were going to accuse Naboth of cursing God and cursing the king. The reason they used two witnesses is because in the law, you had to have two witnesses for corporal punishment. And so the two witnesses come forward. They say, Naboth has cursed God. He's cursed the king. He deserves to be stoned. And they take him out and stone him. It's a terrible 
uh, injustice, terrible, terrible thing, especially when he had everything else that he could ever want, and he has to have Naboth's vineyard. And then we see in verses 17 uh, to 24, we see that God brings this word of judgment through Elijah. And God brings this you know, really powerful word that the dogs are going to lick up Ahab's blood, uh, that his whole family is going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And as we're reading that, it's, it, it's kind of, there's a sense in which it's satisfying. It's like he was this really, really, really bad king. And now uh, he destroys this man's life and livelihood, takes his life, and now he's going to finally get what, what's coming to him. It says in the text in verse 26, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Earlier it said he's like the worst of Israel's kings, and that's saying a lot because Israel has some really, really bad kings. Like he's the worst leader you could think of. If you think about in today's world, I was thinking of maybe a modern day example, you think of someone like Vladimir Putin, who's just done terrible, terrible atrocities against his own people and against other people. That's the type of person he was. So we're, we're kind of satisfied when he gets what's coming to him. But then after that, we see that he repents or appears to repent. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He's walking around dejectedly, and God chooses to show him grace. Of course, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be a punishment, but it says he's going to bring the punishment in his son's day and not in his day. And as I was reading this, it was just kind of, it just hit me the wrong way where it's like he was the worst king you could imagine, and now it seems like he just repents, humbles himself a little bit, and now everything's going to be okay with him. Think about, you know, other characters in Scripture. I think about the thief on the cross. Thief on the cross next to Jesus. And, you know, I wonder what it would be like if you were the families, one of the families that this thief had stolen from. Imagine that this thief had stolen your livelihood. We don't know, maybe this thief was violent. It's often, they were often violent in that day. Maybe they'd harmed your family member. And now you're rejoicing that finally he's hanging on the cross, he's getting what comes to him. And yet Jesus says to him, today you're going to be with me. In paradise. Wait a minute, paradise? This is the guy that stole everything from me. This is the guy who took everything from me. And Jesus says he's going to be with him in paradise. Grace doesn't make sense. Grace is a scandal. We go back to the fundamentals of the gospel. What does the gospel say? The gospel says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 describes our condition before God as being dead, without hope. How much good can a dead man do or dead woman do? Nothing. Paul describes our condition apart from Christ this way in Romans 3. Uh, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths is full of curses and bitterness. Their, sweet, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. 
So apart from Christ, we can truly do no good. We may not be as bad as we could be. We may not be as bad as, as the next person, but it's irrelevant. It's like kind of like going to a morgue and seeing a bunch of dead bodies and asking the question, which body is deader? I mean, they're all dead. We're all dead apart from Christ. And, you know, we may not be as, worse, as bad as the worst of us. We're still dead apart from Christ. We're still broken. We're still sinners. And I think what often happens is as believers, when we accept the gospel, we come to that realization. We come to that realization like we can't live life on our own, that we're broken, that we're sinners. And we ask God for his grace to transform us. And he comes into our lives and he transforms us. And he starts to make us into people that look like him. He starts to make us holy. And then sometimes what happens is we get down the road and God does some things in our life and we get to a place where it's like, look at me. I mean, look at the good things that I do. And sometimes we can forget where we came from and forget that we're all still in need of grace. And I think we have a huge double standard in our culture when it comes to grace. I mean, you just look at kind of our cultural understanding of grace. You know, if someone does something wrong, somebody says something that's not politically correct, how do people respond to that? It's like that person is the worst possible human being ever to exist. It's not that they made a mistake. It's not that they need to be challenged. It's not that they have a different viewpoint. It's that person is evil and they have to be canceled. Now, we say we have grace in our culture, but our culture is not a culture of grace. And oftentimes we kind of take that kind of attitude when it comes to how we view other people in the body of Christ. It's kind of this stance of grace for me, but not for thee. Like if, if we do something wrong, wrong, we want the benefit of the doubt. We want people to, to see our motives, to see that we were just trying to do the right thing. If someone else does something wrong, it's like they're done. D.A. Carson, a scholar from Trinity uh, Divinity School, tells a story about how um, years ago when he was uh, in his studies, he used to meet a man from French uh, West Africa, and uh, they were studying German, and they would talk to one another. They were just kind of uh, working together to study German. And uh, in the course of time, they would eventually get tired of talking uh, in German, and they would uh, then go to a restaurant or whatnot, and then they would just start talking in a language they were both more familiar with, French. And as they were talking, uh, D.A. Carson learned that this man, uh, he was married, his wife was uh, in medical school in London, and he wanted to become an engineer, and he was going to an engineering school in Germany, and so he had to become proficient in German in order to go to that school. But the thing that was interesting that Carson noticed was he noticed that once or twice a week, this man would go down to the red light district of town and visit prostitutes. And they got to a place in his, their relationship where Carson decided he was going to kind of confront him on this. He said, what, do you, what, would you, what would it be like, how would you feel if your wife back in London was doing the same thing, if she was seeing other men? And he said, well, I would kill her. And Carson said, well, doesn't that seem like a double standard? And uh, he said, well, you don't understand. In my culture, it's okay for a man to see many women, but if a woman sees other men, she needs to be stoned. Carson says, well, 
you grew up, in, you said you grew up in a mission school. I mean, you know that God doesn't have that double standard. And this is how he responded. He said, ah, God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. That's grace for me, not for thee. You need to do what, what's right, but I'm forgiven. And that's how a lot of people uh, view Christians. That we spew out things that other people need to do, and yet we do those same things, and then we're just like, well, I'm forgiven. It's okay. And to the world, that just, it's repugnant. A few years ago, some researchers did a study that they summarized under the title, uh, Why Do We Hate Hypocrites? Evidence for a Theory of False Signaling. And they discovered uh, some incredible things about hypocrisy. Um, one study showed that when people condemn a behavior, it signals moral goodness more than if you simply state that you do or don't do a behavior. In other words, kind of a silly example, let's say I told you I don't watch television, which is not true, by the way, just an example. Say I, I don't watch any television. Now, if I told you that, you might think, well, you know, that's a little bit different, not for me, but if he wants to not watch television, that's fine. But if I came up to you and said, hey, I I, I, I think you've been watching some television. You shouldn't watch any television. I mean, that conveys something much deeper. It conveys this sense in which I'm uh, doing something that's better than you are, that I'm right and you're not right. And so moral pronouncements carry a kind of a heavier weight than just saying we do or don't do things. So then the question comes up, so what do we do? Does that mean we shouldn't you know, judge, that we should just kind of do what we want and not say what God's Word says. I don't think that's true at all. I mean, if you look at the heart of the Great Commission, part of the Great Commission, uh, the end of the Great Commission, it's about teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, teaching others. That's part of the, the, the Great Commission, teaching what God's commands are, uh, obeying those commands. And so what is the answer? The answer is being honest. The answer is being honest. The answer is that from one perspective, when you think about hypocrisy, we're all hypocrites. And being honest about that. Now, there's a deeper sense we'll talk about that, you know, we're not all hypocrites in that sense, but in the sense that we say we believe things, but we don't always put them in the practice, we're all hypocrites. You know, you think about God's Word, and God's Word tells us so many things about what it means to to live and to exist in hu as human beings, but who, who could say they, they keep everything in God's word? Doesn't mean we don't believe it. Doesn't mean we don't hold it to be true. We don't always put it into practice. I'll admit, as a pastor, I, you know, I've preached God's word, and sometimes I, it's like, I really need to hear what I'm preaching. And, and I've gone back and listened to some messages and, and kind of seen bits and pieces of things that I've preached I'm like, I, I got to listen to this. Like, I got to put this into practice. So in the sense that we don't always put into practice everything that we believe, we're all hypocrites in that sense. Those same researchers discovered something very interesting in that regard. Uh, they found this. They said, finally, we show that honest hypocrites who avoid false signaling by admitting to committing the condemned transgression are not perceived negatively, even though their actions contradict their stated values. And there's a sense in which Christians are honest hypocrites. We believe the word of God. We should be striving with all of our hearts to obey the word of God. But there's times when we fall short of the glory of God. 
There's times when we make mistakes. There's times when we mess up. And we got to be honest before other people to, to, to let them know we're, we don't have it all together. We don't have all the answer, answers. We fall short of the glory of God. And we are always in need of God's grace. But we forget that sometimes. We get to a place where we, we've grown in our holiness to such an extent that we feel like we have it all together sometimes. And we forget where God has brought us from. Historian, philosopher, and author Richard Rivas, who to my knowledge is not even a Christian, um, said that he's concerned that people are not able to distinguish sometimes between truth and truthfulness. And he says an error and a lie are not the same. And he gives the example of the COVID-19 pandemic. He said when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, we all wanted instant, accurate advice on what to do and what not to do. But the virus was novel. Scientists were scrambling to figure out what it was, how it was spread, how to defeat it. The honest answer to most of our urgent questions was, we don't know yet. The most important question for citizens is not whether public health advice is always right, it's whether public health officials are consistently trying to get it right and communicating the full painful truth, honestly and clearly. Trust is built on truthfulness rather than truth. We don't like the deliberate lie, but acknowledge someone may be making an honest mistake. Truth is empirical, but truthfulness is ethical. Truth is the end product, truthfulness a vital element in its production. But the real problem is a loss of virtue specifically related uh, to the virtue of truthfulness. In other words, when it came to, you know, the COVID-19 information, the most important question in people's mind was not as much is it true, is, is the person communicating it giving truthful information? Even if they maybe have some of the facts wrong here and there, are they communicating what they believe to be true? And as believers, we're to communicate what we believe to be true. We're to communicate the truths of the gospel, the commands of God's word, and also acknowledge the reality we don't always live up to that. Sometimes we fall short of God's standard. So that's our calling as believers, that we're to strive for holiness, strive for the things of God, but also not pretend like we have it all together, not pretend like we've arrived. But there is a deeper kind of hypocrisy that I want to talk about that Jesus mentioned um, and that he warned about many times, and that's the hypocrisy that he condemned the Pharisees for. And that deeper hypocrisy involves desiring the appearance of morality and godliness without actually wanting to be moral or godly. It's desiring the appearance of godliness. I mean, as a Christian, maybe we want to do the things of God. We want to honor God with our lives. We maybe fall short here and there, but that's a different thing than the Pharisees who were just kind of putting on a show, putting money in the offering plate so that people would think that they're holy, not to honor God doing good deeds for someone else so that people would think highly of them, not because they wanted to love their neighbor and to love God. And the hypocrisy that Jesus condemns again and again is, that, is when we use spirituality as kind of a charade or a show, that we're putting on a front before other people. We don't really want to follow God. We don't really want to love other people. We just want to allow people to think that we're holy, to think that we're righteous. That's the hypocrisy that Jesus condemned again and again. Uh, Church Father Augustine put it this way, it's not the being seen of men that's wrong, but doing these things for the purpose of being seen by men. The problem with the hypocrite is his motivation. He does not want to be holy. He only wants to seem to be holy. 
He's more concerned with his reputation for righteousness than about actually becoming righteous. And so, of course, that kind of hypocrisy is something we need to avoid at all costs. It's a temptation for all believers, but it's something we need to avoid. It's not about appearances, it's about a relationship with Christ. Putting that kind of hypocrisy aside, what do we do? How do we live up to God's grace? How do we be honest about who we are before God? And I think there's three ways, very quickly, that we'll talk about how we can be honest about God's grace. Uh, The first is that we recognize our depravity. We need to remember that nothing is good in uh, in us except for God's Holy Spirit and what Jesus has wrought in our lives. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that seems a little extreme. I mean, I feel like I maybe have a little bit to offer apart from Christ. Well, you look at the perhaps the greatest Christian ever to live, the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul said this. He says, For I know nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He said, I, I know there's nothing good in my flesh. In and of myself, I will head towards destruction. I mean, I want to do the right thing. I want to honor Christ. But if I'm left to my own devices, it's going to end in destruction. And that's true for each and every one of us. There's nothing good in us apart from Christ. We all have this inward uh, sin nature that leads us to sin. You know, and you think about people who have committed really great sins. And oftentimes those people who have created, uh, you know, committed those great sins, at one time or another, they would have said, I would never do fill in the blank. But sin got a hold of them and led them away from Christ. Each and every one of us, maybe not capable of the worst evil, but each and every one of us are capable of incredible evil. And we need to remember that. And as we remember that, we need to celebrate the fact that God shows us grace. We don't deserve God's love. We don't Deserve the blessings that he gives us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. God's grace is a gift. We don't earn it. We just simply receive it. Faith is is kind of the tool with, with which we receive it. God has done everything for us. He's given his son for us. He's offered us life and salvation. All we need to do is receive that and follow after him. And so there's no merit in that. It's like you, ne- you don't take, you don't, uh, you don't boast in your rescue. You know, imagine you go down to the Niagara River and you're fishing and you fall into the river And uh, you can't swim, but as you're falling in, you grab a hold of a log, and you're holding on for dear life to that log. And you're not sinking under the water, uh, but you can't get off of it. The current's just carrying you down the stream. And you know eventually it ends at the Niagara Falls. And so you know something has to happen, but you can't swim, you can't get off the raft. Then as you see the, the falls in the distance, you also see a helicopter overhead. You see a diver come down on a steel uh, cable. He comes to you and says, grab a hold of me. Give me the biggest hug you can imagine, and I'm going to pull you up to safety. And you do that, and he pulls you up to safety. What are you, how are you going to respond to that? You say, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving my life. I mean, who among us would say, wow, I did a really good job there. Did you see how I held on to that log? 
I mean, I was falling in, but I grabbed a hold of that log. I mean, did you see how tight I held onto that diver when I was going up? I mean, it was, it was incredible. Of course we wouldn't do that. We were saved because someone else risked their life for us. We're saved because someone else. And as Christians, we're saved because someone gave their life for us. There's no boasting in that. There's no merit in that. We simply receive his gift by faith. And really, that's freeing. It's freeing because we're free to live our lives. We don't have to worry about who we are. We look to Christ. You think about the greatest moments in your life. Think for just a moment about those moments. Maybe it was your wedding day. Maybe it was the birth of a child. Maybe it was going and seeing an incredible sight like the Grand Canyon. I can guarantee you it wasn't looking in the mirror. The greatest moments of our life are not when we're looking at ourselves. It's when we're looking at someone or something else. And grace frees us to do that. We don't have to be worried about us and our performance. We simply receive the gifts of God and follow after him and fix our eyes on him. And so we can be honest about God's grace by celebrating it, remembering where we came from and the things that God has done in our life. Second, or finally, third, we need to extend God's grace to others. How do we respond when someone falls into sin? How do we respond? Do we go to another person and say, huh, can you believe what so-and-so did? And use that as kind of a way to, to boost ourselves up. It's like, I would never do something like that. At least I'm not like this person. Do we use it to kind of boost ourselves up or are our hearts truly grieved? Do we pray for that person? Do we, if we know them, do we reach out to them? Seek to bring them back to Christ? How do we respond to people who fall into sin? When a Christian or especially Christian leaders fall into sin, the Christian community often has a very interesting response. There's an incredible shock and there's this idea of like, oh my gosh, we thought that this person was a good person, and now they did this. The question I have is, why did you think they were a good person? I mean, seriously, why do you think, why do you think they were a good person? I mean, if you believe the gospel, you believe that we're all sinners. We're all broken. Now, of course, if someone did something that, you know, was shockingly sinful. We might be surprised at the manner of sin, but we shouldn't be surprised when Christians fall into sin. We should be striving to, for holiness, striving to put sin to death, but sometimes sin takes over. That's the reality of the fact that we're sinners. And so even though you know, sin may surprise us at times, it shouldn't shock us because even when we come to Christ, we're still sinners. We still have the propensity to do wrong. So we need to show grace to those around us. We need to pray for those who are broken, who've fallen into sin. We're all in need of grace. We can never forget that. And the, what the world is looking for is not perfection. The world is looking for authenticity and sincerity. There's a story about uh, the word sincerity and uh, how that ca word came into being. And I, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's an interesting story. And... Uh, the, in the Greek culture, the Greeks loved to create great statues. And the Romans particularly loved these statues. 
And uh, they were really highly sought after, but by the time the Romans came along, a lot of these statues were two, three hundred years old. And so they started to show some wear. And so what the traders would do is what they would sometimes do is they would take wax and they would cover up all the imperfections. But in the course of time, what would happen is those wax pieces would turn yellow and it would become clear that they were just inauthentic part of the sculptures. Thus, after a while, vendors need to differentiate their complete works from those held together by wax. To do this, it was said they would mark the undamaged statues as being sine, the Latin word for without, and then sera, the Latin word for wax. Sincera, without wax. Truth is, as believers, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the good news is, if we've accepted Christ by faith, he's writing a new story in our life. He's transforming us. He's making us into the image of his son. He's making us more and more holy. But we still have some flaws. As believers, we shouldn't just pretend like we have it all together. We should be without wax, sincere, authentic. Recognize, yes, we're striving for holiness. Yes, we believe the truth of God. But being honest enough to recognize, yes, we sometimes fall short. I think that's our calling as believers, to truly believe in grace, to believe that we're broken apart from Christ, to rejoice in the fact that we've been forgiven, that God has shown us grace, and in turn, extend that same grace to others around us. Let's pray. Lord, we don't understand your grace. Your grace is a scandal. As we see in the scripture, the fact that you pardon those who are undeserving, that you pardon us who are deserving of an eternity separated from you. Lord, help us to never forget who we are, where we've come from. Help us to rejoice in your grace and all that you've done for us. And as we rejoice in, our, in your grace and remember where we've come from, help us to show grace to those around us. Help us to communicate to the world a sincerity and an authenticity that, yes, we believe your word. Yes, we're striving to do the things of God. Yes, we believe your commands. But yes, we fall short of your glory. Lord, help us to be authentic people of faith. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.